and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. With the holidays fast approaching, it is easy to see the increase in stuff all around us. Shipping boxes here, plastic packaging there, and it's all wrapped up in non-recyclable paper with a plastic bow and curly ribbon. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love wrapping gifts and giving thoughtful presents to those I love. But what happens to all the extra stuff after the holidays are over? What impact is our incessant use of plastic having on wildlife, particularly marine species? In this episode, I'm sitting down with Sasha Francis, environmental educator at Galveston Bay Foundation in Texas and former marine mammal trainer. Sasha was born in Rhode Island and knew from a young age that she wanted to pursue a career with wildlife. After an internship working with marine mammals, she knew what she wanted to do. She strived to enter the marine mammal world and worked with many incredible species for over a decade. After years of personal struggles and sacrifices, however, she switched careers to use her personality to educate the public on the plastic crisis. She also participated in an incredible all-women's sailing expedition from Panama to the Galapagos collecting microplastics data. Sasha is such a fun person, and I laugh so many times in this interview, as you'll soon hear. We also touch on some pretty serious topics like her experiences as a marine mammal trainer during Blackfish. Sasha also shares, blah, 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 say that three times fast, many valuable tips on how we all can make more sustainable choices in our everyday lives. If you're liking the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to never miss a future episode and follow Rewildology on your favorite social media platform. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Sasha. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for coming on Rewildology today. We're going to have so much fun. I can already tell. Getting into your yeah. story is going to be a blast. So let's just dive on in. Let's get to square number one. Who was Sasha when she was a young little girl? Where did you grow up? And, and what's the journey that you went down when you were younger? It's really funny because I made a face when you said that because all I imagine when people are like, what were you like when you were younger? I'm like, I think of this one photo. I wish I had it. I'll have to send it to you. Oh, maybe I don't want you to share it. This one photo, my cousin randomly like pulled out of the darkness of film, actual printed photos. So it was 1995, I believe I was about 10 years old. There's a photo of me that should never see the light of day. And I'm wearing a tie-dye Tweety t-shirt just to set the scene. I'm at this outdoor zoo and like Maine, Southwick, I believe it's called. And there is a giant snake around my neck. <laughs> and his name was Jake. And I thought, Jake the snake, <laughs> how funny. <laughs> and this is why my husband married me because he tells terrible jokes and I laugh at them. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I have Jake the snake around my neck. Take that in. Also too small for my face. And I had a very fat face. I mean, I already have big cheeks, but like when I was 10, I was like a little chunky monkey and <laughs> just this. And yeah. And so that whole scene, I'm wearing the worst glasses. Like they were literally like, they, they were so small for my face, but also like if aviators were made of baby blue plastic, just take that for a second. Um, my mother comes out of the bathroom at the zoo and my, she had left me to my, my great aunt, whatever's supervision. And she's like, Sasha Marie, what is that snake around your neck? <laughs> 
And I was, my mom's from Rhode Island, which is where I was born. And she has the most ridiculous accent. And I was like, his name is Jake. As if that would, you know, solve her fear of snakes. I'm like, but he has a name, so he's not going to hurt me. And she was like, oh my God. But anyway, that's me as a child is I was just like, I wanted to meet all the animals. I, you know, loved everything. Was not a fan of spiders or cockroaches. Still not a fan of cockroaches. I've learned to accept spiders. But I was always just wanting to learn about animals and, you know, drawing terrible pictures of dolphins saying I wanted to be a mean biologist or something. You know, marine biologist spelled terribly wrong. Um, and I wanted to save the dolphins and all this stuff. So that was me growing up, going to, uh, the zoo in Rhode Island that I adored Roger Williams Park, which now I know a bunch of the keepers that work there. So that's funny, but yeah, just, you know, loving the zoo and, uh, grew up with a single mom and she worked like three jobs, but never made us feel like she was struggling, which is amazing. She's a saint, but you know, that in turn made it so that our vacations, like they were not to Disney World. They were not, you know, all across the, even the country. My mom never got on a plane till she came to visit me when I moved to Texas nine years ago. Mm, wow. She had never been on a plane. Um, we just couldn't afford that kind of luxury. But instead, she took us camping because it was like, what, $4 for a campsite back then? Um, it's still cheap, which is awesome. And she would take us to the local zoo, which she could get library passes for for free or like really cheap. So we would go to the zoo, we would go to the Museum of Science, and we would go camping. That was like what we did. Luckily, I took to that and didn't hate it. And <laughs> and that was like, honestly, where I grew up was like out, you know, playing in the backyard or running around my neighborhood, but at zoos and museums and, and you know, camping. And so that was how I grew a love for nature and, and, and wildlife. And, you know, it was just really cool. So, you know, just hiking with my mom and like visiting waterfalls and going to the zoo with her and she would draw the animals, which was really cool. Mm. And we would sit and we'd draw together. And so that was really kind of where it started. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I did. And then I knew that I wanted to either be a zookeeper or I wanted to, or marine mammal trainer, or I wanted to work in wildlife rehabilitation, like conservation work. So I got my internship at the Bronx Zoo in New York City, working with all the different mammals there. I was also offered an internship at a seal rescue clinic off the coast of Washington State, which I really wanted to take that one, but it was fully unpaid. Mm. So I just couldn't afford to. I had a phone bill. I had student loans. I had to take care of myself and feed myself. And just that's I so I had to take the New York one, which did pay minimum wage, thank God. And my amazing aunt Cheryl housed me in, in New Jersey. And I took two trains every day for that summer to go to work in New York at the Bronx Zoo and really, you know, be the intern. So, I mean, really, it's no different than just being a zookeeper. You're all cleaning poop. Yep. <laughs> intern or full-time, you know, senior keeper, you're cleaning poop. You're prepping food, you know, you're out in the hot summer heat, covered in hay sticking to your whole body. But I also got to study the gorilla troop in the afternoons and help with a graduate student project about their behavior, which was really cool. Um, I learned I did not want to live in New York City because as wonderful as it is, it's just not for me. I don't like being like super busy city where people would just run you over. But the Bronx is gorgeous and I love it. And if you've ever seen the show, The Zoo, that's where it's filmed. Really great people. But 
That's where I started. And then I went to Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut to volunteer with the beluga whales, which are still one of my favorite animals in the whole wide world. They're incredible. If you ever get a chance to meet them, please do it. You will not be sorry. They're amazing. And then I wouldn't leave and was volunteering there for a couple of years. And they finally gave me a part-time position. Um, well, they hired me on temporarily. This is usually how it goes in the field is there's a maternity leave because it's a lot of women in the industry, which is awesome. It's a really, really heavily populated by women part of science. So a lot of science positions are not, but the zookeeping world and animal behavior, it's definitely like mostly women. So, you know, maternity leave would happen. And that's where you get your foot in the door. That's where you get a temp position. And then, so I did that for a while and stayed on, got a full-time, sorry, a permanent part-time. So it was like upgrade, downgrade. (laughs) I was full-time, now I'm part-time, but I'm permanent. So there's that. So, you know, I was still making, I don't even know at the time, seven, eight bucks an hour, made my way up to a whopping 1050, which was wild. Did that. I was at Mystic a total about five years. Awesome people, great animal care. Just really, I just adore them still to this day. They do really awesome work for conservation and research and help, you know, endangered populations of blue whales and the wild, um, help with sea lion rescue, etc. But I really needed a full-time job and I had not gotten it yet. So I kept looking and that's when I found Moody Gardens in Texas, in Galveston. I had an intern that moved down, back down here. She was from the area. Moved back down here to work at Moody Gardens and told me about a job opening. And so, yeah, I came down to work with her and she was one of my bridesmaids recently. We're still very good friends. And <laughs> she's awesome. And it's really funny because every now and again, I remember like, you know, I really wouldn't be here if I'd never met her. So yeah, she, she works with sea lions at the Houston Zoo now. Awesome. But yeah, came down here to Moody Gardens and worked with seal, sea lions, penguins, and just, yeah, it's great. It was great. And you know, it's still not great pay, but you know, I at least had health insurance that was paid for, which was great. I loved my job. I got to live close by. I didn't have to commute on two trains or when I was working at Mystic an hour and a half each way via car. I've had a lot of long commutes in my life, but it was, yeah, it was awesome. And, you know, I eventually was like, I can't live on $11 an hour anymore. I have to make more money. I'm really just trying to not be living paycheck to paycheck. And my husband, my boyfriend at the time was in the same situation as a zookeeper also. <laughs> so yeah, I apply, I applied for a more senior position at the aquarium in Houston and got that position. So made a little bit more money, but didn't have health insurance anymore. So I traded one thing for another and I really loved that team as well. I worked, I just adored the people I worked with there. They were just incredible but it was an aquarium within a restaurant. So, you know, you didn't really get the same clientele that you get when you're working at a zoo that like really want to be there to see animals and like care about conservation. But at the same time, I thought to myself, you know what, maybe this audience is more important. Maybe these are people that really need to hear what we have to say. And I kind of took that as like, you know, this, it's still important what I'm doing. Also, the animals are incredible and the team's incredible. And I ended up there for about two and a half years before I couldn't handle that commute anymore. And I also really wanted health insurance. So I left and had a couple, you know, just try this, try that. And ended up finally, I was back at Moody Gardens for two weeks as an admin assistant, just to like get something to be able to just sit down and be like, I'm tired. I just need to like collect my life. I need to like not be driving an hour and a half each way. I'm exhausted. I just want to, I'm tired. And I did that for two weeks before I finally got offered this position, which I had been basically applying to this organization for three years. Yeah. So two weeks into my new job, which I was, you know, I was overqualified for. They obviously told me that 
Um, but <laughs> they were just so sweet. And I said, you know what? I'm really sorry, but I just got offered this job that I've been trying for for three years and I don't know what to do. And they're like, what do you mean? Of course you have to take it. Duh. And they're just, they were just so supportive. And they were like, you know, you did a lot for us in the one month you'll accumulatively be here. So it's okay. You know, we'll always be connected. Like, and I just can't thank them enough for that. They just were like, of course, this is what you need to do. Go do it. <laughs> so that includes Bridget's current boss and like my old boss. And they were super supportive. And like you said, the community is like really strong. Um, in the zookeeping conservation world, there's a lot of overlaps. There's a lot of uh, great people that I've been able to spend the last 12, I mean, now, I don't even know, 14 years of my life with. And so, yeah. And that's how I ended up here today. And my husband and I met at Moody Gardens. He was a volunteer in the penguin and seal department when I worked there. And we met literally on the penguin exhibit. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cute. I was like running around all morning and then finally like got to the penguin exhibit to go feed. And they're like, here's your, our new volunteer. And I was like, hey, nice to meet you. And he's like, like he barely spoke. Um, <laughs> but of course me, I talk all the time. So I kept talking and finally he started talking back to me eventually <laughs> and then yeah we just like totally hit it off and I dumped my boyfriend and was like bye um, <laughs> and was like what have I been doing with my life this person's amazing and so here we are eight years later married and he's now a biology teacher I now am in conservation and we still stay connected with all our awesome zoo friends and and really try to continue overlapping with the work that we do which is really cool it's really mm. cool yeah wow Wow. So that's in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. And and I have so many questions, so many things that I wrote down that I really want to dive into. And I, I want to take some steps back first to start to really break down the decisions you make to go through your journey. And mm -hmm. you're one of the first people that I've had on that's worked with marine mammals. And that is a very particular subset of, you know, just captive animals. So mm -hmm. why did you decide to focus on that? And two, how did you get into that? Because that's so specific. And I'm sure it the is. competition is stupid. So, it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there might be someone listening like, oh, my God, I really want to do what you're doing, Sasha, or that you did back in the yeah. day. How did you do it? How did you how did you get there? So I decided on this because, you know, growing up, I was like, I really want to, I loved like, you know, I grew up in the ocean state. So I saw the ocean all the time and it just fascinated me. And I was like, you know what? I think I really want to work with marine mammals um, up in Rhode Island. We see seals, you know, for lucky we'll see dolphins maybe, but you know, the Boston aquarium, New England aquarium has this really cool giant like whale sculpture that like hangs over. That just was like blew my mind when I was a kid. But I did my internship at the Bronx Zoo with all different mammals, which included sea lions, included gorillas, which were my other super high interest, you know, animal. And so what I did was I started with the gorillas. I spent a week in that area at the zoo. And after that week was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really honestly like kind of pushed me into marine mammals is definitely my choice. Was here, something happened? Did something oh, happen? No, they're just disgusting. Oh, <laughs> they're just so gross. They're just okay. Imagine a man that has zero hygiene, zero, <laughs> zero hygiene, zero boundaries, just fully primitive. Just honestly, I can't say it without saying poop everywhere. 
just literally everywhere on the walls clogging the drains like I hate to describe this but this is what you need to know this is so good keep going (laughs) so bad so bad my one of my defining moments which is why I worked in marine mammals and not gorillas is I remember very clearly one day one of the keepers looked at me and said your job this morning is to keep that drain from clogging and I was like what drain and he pointed to the drain on the floor which was about this deep Okay. And it was this big, long drain where we would hose and everything would drain down into it, all the poop. And that's just the easiest way to do it. And he was like, okay, here's some gloves. Now, if you've ever, I'm sure during the times of COVID, you've worn latex gloves at some point. And if you notice when I said it was like this deep and you think about latex gloves, right? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't get any of those big dishwashing gloves. No, 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 no. We're not washing those. We're going to go ahead and give you these guys. So this is me and this is the drain. So I mean, flooded, flooded with poop water. This is flooded with poop water. And I was like, okay, listen, I've been camping my whole life. I am not, I'm not afraid to get dirty, but like, no, (laughs) did I do it? Absolutely. Because I have a lot of pride in my work. Did I want to do it for the rest of my life? Absolutely not. And I can't, I mean, through my entire zookeeping career, I've had many disgusting, disgusting moments. That being the first one to christen (laughs) me. But then I said, you know what? I don't, I think I'd rather work with something that poops in the water primarily. That way I can either like net it out or maybe just like vacuum it up or maybe it just disappears like whale poop. God bless them. Mostly just disappears. (laughs) Sea lions though. Do not underestimate a sea lion poop. <laughs> it is potent and large and terrible. But usually you can use a net, which is fine. But that is why I decided <laughs> I liked sea lions better. And that's how I went down that path. But basically what I did was once I decided on that, I you know continued applying for jobs constantly, which it's a lot of applying for jobs. I'm sure there are other fields where it's literally just constant. Like you're just constant, constant, constant you know, cover letters, pulling things out, plugging things in, da, 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 messing with your resume to make it more applicable here and there. But I mean, sending many, many job applications every day. And all the while I um, applied to be a volunteer at Mystic and they have an awesome volunteer program where I actually got to work with side by side with the trainers and go out and clean and, and be there for the feeds. And eventually help them train behaviors or train some of my own behaviors, which was really cool. So I just, I volunteered. That's what I did. And that's what really the only thing you can do to jump in is, is see where you can volunteer in turn and just connect with the people there and really work hard and be, you know, flexible and be available and, and, and show that you really care because it is a, a job that's very deeply rooted in your passion for the wildlife and, you know, really for, for a long time, putting them before you, and, you know, sometimes before your family, before your pets, like really a lot of times it's, it's that, that kind of job, like, like a lot of jobs of fashion are, you know, whether it's nursing, teaching, animal rescue, vet care, it's a lot of that, those jobs of passion where you have to just be there, you know, and that's, that can be really hard for people that do want to have families. And that's why a lot of people in the industry don't end up having kids. It's, it's hard to do both. It really is. So it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing when you, 
when you do find management that that does understand, you know, work-life balance and, you know, there are very few parents in the industry um, that stick around. And it's really lovely when you can have a supportive team or manager that can say, you know, like, no, like it's Christmas. Like, (laughs) and, you know, speaking from somebody who doesn't have kids and knew I wasn't going to plan on having kids. Like we did, I did have a coworker at downtown aquarium who she was the only one that had kids and we'd be like, no, 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 Angelica, you don't work Christmas. I am not, I'm not waking up with my little ones, seeing their faces beaming and they're, and you're not there. Like you should be there, you know, and, and having that really good supportive team is crucial. So, you know, you'll see that in a lot of, a lot of places if you're lucky, but, but yeah, I, I stuck around and they finally needed somebody to fill in. And so that's just how I got started. And my best advice I gave this recently would, would be to go somewhere where you want to stay because what happens a lot of times is people will start volunteering or interning somewhere and then they get their foot in the door and they get really connected to people and teams and animals. And that's really their best chance oftentimes of getting a full-time job. But if they don't really want to live there, you know, then they're going to have to leave and start over at some point, which man, once you get the experience, once you get enough experience, yeah, you can apply for their jobs and you can move, et cetera. But to really get your foot in the door, you, you really want to start someplace where you want to be for like five years. And that's the best thing to do is, is to start somewhere interning, volunteering, where you don't mind sticking around for a while, because it's going to take time often. It's going to take time and, and effort and consistency. But yeah, I mean, marine mammals are incredible animals, just smart, lovely, funny, weird. You know, I worked with quite a few rescued sea lions and seals that were not releasable that just... Man, they you just see the life they end up having um, that they would have died had no one been there. You know, we had a blind sea lion at Moody that just fascinated me with what she could learn. Just incredible the way that we worked around her to have her listen to a sound of a target to follow us, to touching her gently for different cues. Um, I worked with blind and deaf animals. Um, so really fascinating the things that we could teach them. It's like sign language, you know, but, but if the animal's blind, you have to rely on sound. So this is actually Squirt's little nose print here on my oh arm. Oh my gosh, that is precious. Looks like a little heart, little gothic heart. It does. Heart. Yeah. She passed away, I think, two, oh my gosh, has it been two years? But she, you know, she, she lived a good life, you know, that she would not have been, she was found like emaciated and Mm. blind from, they determined since birth. So they think her mother abandoned her, but man, she was just so smart and so funny and weird and goofy and (laughs) man, just, just really cool. Just really cool. Getting any animal though. I will say working with any animal, they will steal your heart. I went from working with seals, sea lions, blue whales, penguins to working with rats to working with some parrots and porcupines and things and of all the things and I was working with tigers too but like those rats man <laughs> they stole my heart my boss would joke like you used to work belugas and now I, I walk in and you're just like hello friend <laughs> rats are very underestimated they're very smart very sweet very clean adorable but they live for like three years max so you get attached but I will say marine mammals are incredible and if you want to work with them, go for it. Put in the work. There are a lot of very particular people that work in marine mammals. <laughs> They're uh, we're a special breed. A lot of, lot of type A's, as they say. Not that I particularly believe in that. But 
a lot of type A's, a lot of very proud people. There's a lot of passion and sometimes too much passion in a room can get real fiery mm. and heated and too many cooks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I don't regret it for a minute. And it was some of the coolest times of my life. And I still am very uh, attached to marine mammals. And in fact, hopefully if I get more spare time in my life, I would like to volunteer with our Marine Mammal Stranding Network here, which we work with at my organization is, you know, we collaborate with them on stuff. And we just collaborated with them on a manatee rescue. Pretty cool. I could not go because I was already doing something. And I was like, no. (laughs) Um, But I mean, awesome, like awesome, awesome group here. And I just would love to be able to put my skills to use like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Come full circle in your your story here. And and also too, (laughs) since you were in this for so long, and the next question is not a fun topic, but one that I really want a chance to talk with someone like you that has so much experience on this. Since you did work with marine mammals and some unfortunate documentaries came out about mm. marine mammals in captivity, what did you deal with when that happened? What did you uh. experience? Like, what are some of the things that people said to you or... or I, I, cause I want to hear it from your side, from someone who knew better. And yeah, so I, I would love to, for you to, as much as you want to talk about that, please, please enlighten us from, cause I was just the third person watching all this yeah. go down. Yeah. I was not on the front lines. Yeah. So please, please tell me what it was like. Well, it's funny. Cause like to this day, I still find myself, you know, getting into these conversations and luckily now it's mostly people that just are unaware and shy away from visiting zoos and aquariums. I literally just had this conversation with a coworker today. She's very lovely. And we had a great chat about, you know, a lot of people just don't know a person, like you said, that has been there. And so they have no idea. And so from the outside, there's a lot to unpack and there's a lot you don't understand. So my best advice to her was like, when you go visit a place, ask them questions. I mean, don't be like, you're a terrible person because that's what we got was people would come in and be like, you're a monster for what you do. You're a monster Mm. and you're cruel and you're abusive and you're all these things and these animals should be set free or they're better off dead than with you. And, you know, all these really terrible things. And I wasn't even an, an orca trainer. And when that came out, I think I was at Moody at the time. So I wasn't even working blue whales anymore, but I was working with seals and sea lions which are, you know, the next thing, next thing in line to be speculated, I guess. But it was, it was really hard, you know, and I did work at a facility that had tigers in an indoor exhibit, which, you know, no, is not ideal. Did the people who work with these animals put them there? No, that's also important to note. Do the people that work with them wish any harm upon them? No. Do they abuse them? Absolutely not. I can't stress that enough that one, a lot of people don't know the Marine Mammal Protection Act of the 70s actually banned the collection of marine mammals from U.S. waters way back when. So when you look at those orcas, for example, they're either born there or they came there a long time ago. Either way, they cannot be put back in the wild. I think most people know that by now. Um, If you actually read, I mean, I do recommend it, but I don't recommend it. The real story of Free Willy you'll know that he died a very, very sad death. And it's not a better option. And like I said, I mean, you just hold my 
heard my whole story about working with animals and just how amazing they are and all the work you put into them. And they're definitely not better off being released. You know, these animals are accustomed. I mean, you see dolphins in the wild, manatees in the wild that get used to coming up to boats and get severely injured. There needs to be that distance and that separation of them relying on people for food. When you grow up, when an animal grows up with that, you can't break that. When you bring in an animal that's planning to be released, you have to not train it. You have to provide food basically without being seen, which is really hard for marine mammals because they do um, rely oftentimes, especially dolphins, on a pod, orcas too, on that connection, on that social organization and connection. And, and it's really hard for marine mammals sometimes when they can't get that. And when you're trying to provide it in a, in a very strategic way so that they don't get attached to you, but also don't feel, I, mean, I don't want to say neglected, but like alone. not connect, yeah. not yeah, alone. It can be, they're such smart animals, you know? So yeah, it's a, a social interaction is very important. So yeah, I mean, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, making, making people understand that the, when you're looking at speaking of blackfish and specifically when you're looking at that, you know, those animals have been there either a really long time or they've been born there. And that's, that's their life that they understand and, and do love. I mean, you think about your dog most often, my dog, I will tell you right now, she, yeah, she likes going outside, but then she's like, excuse me, can I come back, please? <laughs> right. You have food, you have couch, you have climate control, you have safety, <laughs> you have protection, you have love, you have connection. And these animals born in these in these zoos and aquariums like that's their life that's their safety that's their comfort that's what they you know that's their home and you know the, as as far as the animals that were caught in the wild that's not something that these trainers and these documentaries did that's not something that is no longer that's something that's no longer allowed there are very rare cases where for genetic diversity and furthering the conservation of a species, you might collect some wild individuals. And that's done now after years of analysis, behavior monitoring, population monitoring, research of a specific population of animals, and then deciding, you know, would we be able to include some of these individuals in our population to further the species? I mean, animals like the red wolf, for example, like there are animals that have gone extinct in the wild that otherwise would not be repopulated in the wild if it wasn't for zoos and aquariums. Do I think specifically orcas need more room? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. They need more space. And you know what? After that, after Blackfish, SeaWorld had slated and decided that they were going to create this really cool, like lagoon, massive exhibit. But then their tickets, their sales absolutely crashed. Mm. because of this backlash people lost their jobs and they no longer were able to afford that so it kind of honestly it it had the opposite effect <laughs> because you know instead of them being able to provide a better life which in some cases this backlash is helpful for but there's a balance you know there's a balance to say you know what this is not ideal for these animals let's do better Yes, absolutely. We should always be pushing for better across the board. And that can be done. And modern zoos and aquariums are 100% doing that, especially our generation of keepers and managers are like, this isn't good enough. How can we make it more naturalistic? How can we give them more time outside? How can we give them more access to social situations? How can we give them more choice and control when we're doing training sessions with them, when we are... How 
always a modern zookeeper or trainer approaches an animal and basically essentially asks them if they'd like to participate in a training session, if they'd like to move from one place to another. If that animal says no, guess what? You're not forcing an orca to do anything. (laughs) Newsflash, that animal's huge. If it doesn't want to go somewhere, it's not going to (laughs) go. 100% true. Same can be said for a hedgehog. I mean, you really, you're not going to force it to go. And our generation, I can wholeheartedly say, I know an orca trainer, like I said, at every single SeaWorld. Have they ever put those animals in a situation that they were forcing them to do something? No. I can 100% tell you that because I know them and I've been there and I've worked with marine mammals and I've said to this whale, hey, could you go, go that way so I can check your flippers or take a blood sample if you don't mind to check on your health? If they said no and swam away, I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> I'm not going to chase them. Like, <laughs> damn it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, but that's why you work so hard to build this trust and to build this safe space. If they, if, if, if these animals are abused, if they are, you know, forced to do things, they are not going to stick around, you know, for a long time, way back in the day. Yeah. There were keepers that were, forcing them to do things or using techniques that we do not use today, Um, developing what's called learn helplessness, where they literally just comply because they're scared. And that's not the case in, I mean, at least in, I would say last 20 years for sure is not how we work with animals anymore. Cesar Milan, remember that guy? Fuck that guy. Um, (laughs) Cesar Milan, for example, same thing. But, you know, a lot of people aren't up in arms about it because it's a dog, not a whale. I mean, you shouldn't be treating an, any animal that way. Rat, whale, doesn't matter. I don't treat my dog that way. And I have met people that treat their dogs that way. And you are not going to have a, a lifelong, safe, healthy relationship that lacks fear if you treat an animal like it has no choice. If you treat an animal like it's going to be in danger or not get fed if he doesn't do what you say, that's not how you build a long lasting, trusting relationship. I have a dog that was in a meth lab fire when she was seven years old. She was terrified of men. She was aggressive towards men. She was just, I mean, scared. So, so scared, which turned into aggression. And I worked really hard with her creating a safe space, building that rapport, you know, letting her know that I was here and that if she didn't want to do something, she didn't have to. If she didn't want to meet another dog, she doesn't ever have to. Just you got to give animals choice and control in their environment and their situation. And so I think it's really important that when people watch documentaries like this, they realize, A, that footage is black and white for a reason. It's old. It is not how we operate anymore. And I say we because I very much still am a huge advocate for people in zoo and aquarium world because they are incredible people. And, you know, that's old footage. That is not how we operate anymore. That is, you know, these animals are not there because the person you're watching when you go to SeaWorld put them there. Absolutely not. But you know what that person you do see at SeaWorld is doing? Giving that animal the best care they can every single day, including holidays including when they're not with their kids and their family and their own dog, because they just have an undying love. And that's a love that is not paid a living wage, (laughs) mostly, Um, and is based on pure passion and love. And so I think that what I would encourage people 
able to do is talk to an actual zookeeper, talk to an actual animal trainer, um, go in there. You can literally look up minute by minute fallacies of blackfish. And there are people that are in that film or in the footage that are not that she's like, oh yeah, that's me. That wasn't her. There's another person that they're not interviewing that is in that footage that has a different story that they didn't bother to ask. And so there's a lot of fallacies. There's a lot of just fear mongering among it. And really what it was at the end of the day is someone getting rich off of a trainer that died, which was tragic. And that person who, who unfortunately passed would never, I can promise you to this day, blame that animal or blame SeaWorld or blame her team. She would never have wanted any of that. And she would say, I did something wrong. That's what any trainer says anytime their animal does something wrong is, what did I do? I didn't communicate to them clearly enough. I did something that, you know, wasn't, they didn't understand. Or I set them up to not succeed. Um, even with my own dog, I'm like, okay, I might be frustrated, but what did I do? You know, why didn't you understand what I asked? Or, you know, why are you suddenly nervous? What's going on in the room, you know? So I would just challenge people to not take everything as they see. And look up the other side of the story like you would anything else. And go visit your local zoo and aquarium and go ask them questions. Go to the keeper and say like, hey, can you tell me how you train that hawk? Can you tell me how you train that elephant? You know, what do they know how to do? And how do you get them to understand that's, that's what you're looking for? And what do you do if they do something wrong? Ask questions. I guarantee you're going to have answers you didn't expect, which is that man, they have a lot of patience <laughs> and those animals get fed. They do get fed. They do not get no food. If they don't do what a keeper asks, that's also a big fat lie. I'll tell you that right now. Gosh, they always get fed. I they mean, always get fed. I mean, to I'm the point, yeah, I mean like to the point where it's like, I think animal nutrition, I think we got to go on a diet. <laughs> I think they're too uh -huh. well. <laughs> we got a little chunky here. Yeah. Oops. Oopsie. Oopsie. <laughs> oh, we got a lot of wear. But yeah, I mean, sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but no, that was great. I'm just thank you. Very passionate you. about it. And I think it's really unfortunate that a lot of people got literal death threats during that time because people didn't know and they didn't ask the actual human beings that do this for a living. Exactly. And when you put and when you put your life on the line, yes, when you put your time and patience and and literally your family life on on hold sometimes for these animals and someone comes up to you and says you're a monster for what you do and like are you kidding me I would literally jump in front of a bullet for this animal like I would and but this is what you're saying to me are you kidding me it's just wild oh so and, and upsetting and that's why I, I wanted to give a second to talk about that because after our last conversation, I'm just like, I'm sure she saw hell and yeah. <laughs> really wanted to hear it for real though. Like, I mean, being in this world for so long, I, I personally didn't know anybody who was a marine mammal trainer, yeah. but when that came out, I, I was onslaughted as well. And and I wasn't even doing it. And you know what I mean? And so that's why I wanted to take a chance to to give you time to talk about it because mm -hmm. we all need to hear this. We all need to hear the truth. We all need to hear when propaganda is slewed out in multiple different ways. And I mean, there's so many other documentaries that come out where it's 
total fallacy, like you said. So yeah, yeah. So I and I will I will also say that a lot of people like to throw the word sanctuary around as if it's better, but I will also say be careful with that because <laughs> no, I have not watched Tiger King, and no, I will not watch Tiger King. There's really no like regulation or like guidelines for to be called a sanctuary. Kind of like what's the word natural when it comes to foods, natural. Um, so it's a word that often is very misleading, unfortunately, and a roadside, whatever that has no regulations or, or like things they have to meet can just do whatever they want. So be careful when you say, I'm not going to the zoo, I'm going to the sanctuary. I will tell you that is not always better. Oftentimes it's not. Most um, of the time. <laughs> but zoos and aquariums, zoos and aquariums in the U.S. Uh, have the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is a accreditation organization that has certain guidelines that have to be met where it comes to how the staff's trained, uh, what the animals are provided every single day, what records you keep, what vet things you do, what stimulation you're providing, what kind of training you perform with them, what, you know, what you're holding yourself to. And it's really important to have that system in place, checks and balances to make sure you're doing the right thing. And it's helpful to keepers that are doing the right thing if they happen to run into, you know, teammates or managers that aren't. It's rare these days, but, you know, there, there are instances where, where they need support in that, in that world. But, but yeah, that's the only other thing I think I'd mention is, you know, don't discount your local zoo or aquarium. They do incredible work and they put a lot of that money back into conservation and really, really skilled people there, like giving all their love to those. If it's AZA accredited, then they have to give a certain percent of their revenue to conservation. Exactly. Like on the ground conservation. So yeah. that's what exactly. I keep saying on this podcast over and over. If you are going to go to a wildlife thing of some sort, see mm-hmm. if it's AZA accredited. And there AZA- are others too, like ZAA is another mm. one. AZA can be somewhat, I think it's 5000 a year. So it can be somewhat pricey for smaller zoos that may be doing good work. So if they're not, but they're a very small facility, I mean, give them a chance and, and see for yourself. But have kind of, have kind of, you know, eyes and say, okay, well, like, does this thing, you know, what does that food look like that they're feeding them? You know, is it, and a lot of people want to anthropomorphize animals. Like it looks sad. No, cats sleep so much, guys. <laughs> if a cat is sleeping, guess what? It means it feels safe. If it's not, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, if, it, if it never slept, man, man, maybe you should worry. And cats do also walk a path of their own territory that they create. When you go in the wild, you'll see cats pounding the ground down basically from their paths that they create to create their territory. So a lot of people think, oh, cats are pacing. That's bad. That's not necessarily true. Um, a lot of times they will create basically a territorial path to monitor. And that's, that's what they'll do. They call it patrolling. So there's all sorts of things you can dive into. So just look to learn more before you, before you judge. And yes, we can always do better. And that's something that modern zoos and aquariums are striving for all the time. But guess what? They can't do it if nobody goes there and, and pays to see the animals. They can't make these improvements if people just stop showing up. Absolutely. So, anyway, Which I'll- COVID dev- has definitely shown as well. Ugh, I'll get off my soapbox. No, that was great. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know, I can tell. So that is why, and I had a feeling that that question might fluster you. So that's why the next one is going to be so fun. Okay, woo. Yeah, let's take a drink. Let's let's both take a drink. I know that was really heavy. 
Thank you so much, Sasha, for going. Just being just being open with us about that. So let let's switch gears here to something super fun. Yeah. <laughs> Your expedition in the Galapagos. Okay, okay, okay. This is so freaking cool what you did. Please awesome. explain everything. Explain to me, explain to, the, to everybody what this was, this incredible all-women's expedition that you did in the Galapagos. What is it that this project was? What was the goal? What did you accomplish? Everything. Tell me everything. So <laughs> the best, this is the best part, but it's the funniest part is, so I, people always ask like, oh my God, how did you find this opportunity? Like what? Uh, it's based in England. So like, why would I have, um, it was a Facebook ad. Kid you not. <laughs> Kid you not. I was on Facebook and I just came across my newsfeed, like want to sail and collect microplastic samples on a crew of all women. And I was like, do I ever? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rad so I was like this can't be real and then I like clicked on it and saw some comments from previous participants um because they had they had done the um Great Pacific Garbage Patch before and had done like a Caribbean one and it was uh this particular project was slated to be a couple of years and was going to feature 300 women total it was going to be 30 different legs all the way around the world, 10 different women each leg from all over the world, all different backgrounds. It's like, I don't care if you're a photographer, a fashion designer, somebody who works in the plastics industry, teacher, you know, a stay-at-home mom, like anybody, any woman, transgender, otherwise, um, anyone's accepted, we please apply and, and come join us. And so I applied and I was like, there's no way of getting into this. This is wild, but why not? What else am I going to do today? Um, so <laughs> it was like a Saturday morning. I was like, all right. And so I applied and it basically just asked me like, you know, what I do for work, what my interests are, why I would be interested in this project, a little bit about my background and like what my top three trip choices were. So basically it started in Plymouth, uh, UK and and it went um, down to the Azores, which is actually where my family is from. Um, so I was like, that would be rad. But I was looking up before I decided on my top three, I looked at the flights to all these places Smart, be because, <laughs> you know, I was just coming off as actually, no, I applied well before I stopped being a zookeeper. I was on a zookeeper salary. And so I looked at this and I said, man, there's a lot of these. I cannot, I can't afford to fly home from Easter Island. <laughs> what so that's out so I looked around and was like okay nope not flying home from Fiji blah 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 plus I've been to Fiji once luckily but I looked at all the flights and I was like okay what can I afford I can because you have to fly yourself to the first port you get on the boat you sail to the next port you fly yourself home mm. so I had to pick wisely and said okay I can do one cheap flight and one maybe expensive-ish flight can't do two very expensive flights <laughs> <laughs> so I applied for my first choice was Panama to the Galapagos. So I said, yeah, flying home from the Galapagos is probably going to be like $800 to $1,000. But flying to Panama is like two and change. So I could probably swing that. They also said like a lot of people fundraise. Um, so like don't discount it if you can't afford this whole thing because there was also like a tuition you pay, like oftentimes when you go to work abroad. So I said, okay, they said a lot of people successfully fundraise. I said, you know what? I have a big community. I don't like asking people for money, but like, what if I do presentations and like, or like sell sustainable gifts and like, you know, I have all these other ideas in my head. So I applied for Panama to the Galapagos. I applied for, I think UK to Azores 
and another one that wasn't too far away. I think the one from Azor Shib, Panama. And I got an email back after some time and they were like, we'd love to interview you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. So of course these people are in England. And so the time, it was like half o'clock in the morning. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. As a zookeeper, I determined my future did not involve me getting up before the sun because I, I hate it. <laughs> hate it. Um, one of the other reasons I love zookeeping. But I got up and I sat in front of my bookshelf of Nat Geo's and my little animal sculptures and was like, look at how cool I am. I have all these Nat Geo's and I'm a nerd. And it's not not true. But I was just <laughs> hamming it up a little bit. And, she, you know, we're on Zoom and she's like, oh, good morning. And she had this lovely British accent. And I was like, oh, my God, this is real. And she's like, okay, we're just going to get started, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. She's like, do you have any questions for me? And I was like, is this a scam? <laughs> She laughed and she was like, no, no, you know, she could understand why I thought that, but she was like, no. And she explained like where she was and like the whole project and everything. And I was like, okay, well now that we've gotten that out of the way. So yeah, they asked me everything and, and I was selected and the, they offered me another trip that I couldn't afford. I think the Easter Island one. And I was like, Easter Island to Fiji. And I was like, that sounds incredible. But to be honest, I can't afford it. You know, and my first choice involved the Galapagos because I'm a biologist and like, that's my dream, but also it's because I could afford it. So like, I don't know if I could do this, you know, and I was devastated and I was like, it's like more than twice the amount in flights. And so they wrote back and they're like, okay, like, we'll see what we can do, blah, blah, blah. And I guess they had someone decline the Galapagos trip. And so they got to pop me in that one. And so I was like, yes, yes. And they had like three different payments that you had to do over the course of a year to like pay it off. And then I, you know, I, I got in. And so I was like, oh my God, amazing. And I had, I think like a year or so to like raise money to, you know, meet my sisters, <laughs> um, meet the other women on my crew. And like, we got a zoom chat in and like answered questions that we had and, you know, just met each other. And I had, there were women from all over the world. And so, yeah, we got everything geared up and I had then the November before my February trip, I got this job. <laughs> and when I got, when I went back to Moody Gardens, I had said, Hey, I'm doing this plastic pollution expedition. Like, are you going to be able to let me leave for like two to three weeks in February? You know, and the Austin director there was like, yeah. And also I can't pay you what your skill set is worth. So because the budget's already been put in place. So you're making $14 an hour and you deserve to make more than that. But how about we help pay your flights for your trip and we can have you present here about, you know, what you're doing and talk about plastics pollution and how it affects wildlife. We can have like a viewing and it'd be really cool. So he turned it into like a, yeah, not only can you go, but like, we're going to help because we want, we want to talk about animals in the wild and how they're affected by pollution and, you know, why these species here at Moon Gardens are so important. Awesome. Supportive. Fantastic. So when I got offered this job, I was like, Hey guys, so here's this thing. I, yes, I love, I'm very excited for this job, but like in like two and a half months, I'm going to be gone for like three weeks. Is that going to be a problem? They're like, no, you know what? If that's, if that is, if it's, if it's, yeah, that's a problem or no, we can't hire, you know, no, we'll work it out. Work it out. <laughs> so they were, yeah, they were great too. And they were on board. So yeah, in February of 2020, which 
you know how close that is to COVID. Um, February 2020, I went for three weeks. I went not knowing a soul. I showed up in Panama. I met these amazing other nine women from all over the world. And we just like hit it off and became just great friends. We all got on this sailboat and maybe, maybe like one or two of us had real sailing experience, (laughs) but there was a fantastic captain, Anna, an amazing first mate, Maggie and a deckhand Millie. And they are all women that have been sailing since they were like four years old. Wow. And when I would tell people about this, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going on an all women sailing trip. What do you think I got in response to that from a lot of older men at the bar I bartended at? Mm, yeah, right. Like, you can't do that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, like, even the captain's a woman? Yeah. Oh, good luck. Good luck what? I, can you sail up a 74-foot catch? You don't even know what a catch is. Shut up and drink your <laughs> beer, Dave. You know, like, just... Ugh, just all sorts of sexist bullshit came with that. But I was like, yes, actually, it's all women. And in, including the science lead, who's a PhD in microplastic studies. What do you have to say for yourself about that? He's like, oh, I just golf. <laughs> but but yeah, so man, and I was a little bit nervous, you know, being in the middle of the ocean. And I had never been on a boat for more than a few days. I mean, I had, I had been overnight on a boat before, but but not a long time. So I was a little bit nervous. But man, day one on the boat with these women, like all of my fears out the window. They are just, they know their shit. Like (laughs) it was wild, you know? And I, you know, I had no doubts man versus woman running a boat that whoever they were, were going to be good at their job. But I just had, didn't know what to expect. So I got on a boat and like thought to myself, well, what if the ship goes down on the ocean and we're like four days away from people? What are we going to do? Well, Sasha, we have not only Two, we have three dinghies on this boat that will automatically deploy should the boat start to sink. They have all these signals on them. They'll send out all these signals. We have enough food for two weeks for everybody, even if we lose one whole boat. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, man, this is not scary at all. Like the the preparations on board are insane. And I mean, I had no doubt in my mind whoever was going to be running the ship would be awesome. And she was amazing. And I, so man, all the fear out the window, I was like, man, this is really cool and incredible. And so every day we would do usually three microplastic trawls. So we have this thing called the Manta trawl and it's like this big metal frame that sits on top of the water and has a big like net, almost like a brine net, like a brine shrimp net coming out of it, like a tail. And we would float it on top at a specific speed. I think about three knots, but that's not important. Um, (laughs) We would float along and we would collect for 10 minutes at a time, whatever we could collect from the top of the water and we would pull it up and then we would rinse through these different size sieves and we would pull it all out and we would jar it up and we would count the different number of microplastics we found with the naked eye. And then they would also save those samples for further analysis. We would also take some of the microplastics that we could see and we would put them on this really cool infrared machine called an FTIR, which we had on board, which is a really cool, cool machine. And it would actually analyze um, the infrared kind of waves and how they were reflected or went through these different plastic sizes um, or different plastic materials to tell you exactly what kind of material it was. Because if it's a high density polyethylene, for example, high density means it's not going to let a lot of light through. So it would tell you based on the wavelengths that pass through what you were looking at. And, po- and, and that in turn will tell you maybe where it came from. If it's, you know, restaurant 
cutlery or a plastic cup or is it a plastic bag? Is it, you know, what kind of plastic is it? Um, so we would analyze all the samples too. And then we would do um, Niskin bottles, which is, is a water sample that's from the water column. I think it was 30 meters. We would um, set that down and it would automatically close when we stopped it. And so we would collect water samples too and run those through as well. And then we did some sediment sampling, but that was really challenging being that far offshore. But we did some when we were docked, which was really cool as well. So we did, you know, usually would run a few samples every day on our way from Panama to the Galapagos. And, and then in addition to that, you know, we're analyzing these samples, whatever. We're cleaning the whole boat. We're doing everything. I brought a book. Didn't open it once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have time to chip. No. <laughs> which is fine. We were working. But, you know, when we weren't analyzing samples, when we weren't cleaning, when we weren't cooking, when we weren't eating, when we weren't sleeping for four hour chunks at a time, because we had different watches, we'd have to get up in the middle of the night. We were talking about doing brainstorming sessions that were structured to kind of help find solutions to the plastics problem in the world. And from that's where the, the 10 different women really come into play. So we had a woman that works in industrial shipping. We had a woman that works in PR for fashion industry. And we had, you know, a doctor from the UK. We had a woman that works in a lot of activism and kind of high level celebrity PR media work. You know, we had people from all over, a college teacher, me, who worked in community education and engagement. You know, we had an artist. We had just kind of a little bit of everything. It was really cool. We had a woman who worked for a travel company, you know, and we would all just sit together at this table and chat. And, and you know, it was wild. Just, you know, I didn't think of that. Oh, I didn't think of that, you know. And we started just sticky note, like all over the table, like, well, what can we do about this? And what do you think people need to know? And how do you think, you know, the industry needs to contribute and how to, it, just all these layers. And it was really cool. And so we were uh, leg six of what was supposed to be a 30 leg journey. We were going to go through four out of the five uh, gyres of plastic, ocean plastics. And they had already done the North Pacific, Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, so this was meant to go through the other four. Well, by leg eight, COVID was just fully, fully there everywhere. So leg eight um, ladies got actually had to stay out at sea and couldn't come into port right away because of the restrictions. I think it was in Fiji or Tahiti where they got stuck. But again, incredible women running this ship, man, they had plenty of food. They, they were out there just kind of chilling in South Pacific waters. And so unfortunately, after leg eight, they put everything on hold. And there was a lot of women that had, you know, been super pumped and had been fundraising and doing presentations and just really excited for this opportunity of a lifetime. And what they did at first was they put it off for exactly a year because there's all these cyclone seasons and tides and all these things that they have to carefully plan around for, for safe sailing and also to get the timing right. So exactly one year from where they stopped, and COVID was still happening. And so they ended up having to fully cancel it, which was devastating to a lot of the women that were, you know, had already fundraised, had already like committed to this process and were so excited and to not be able to do it was just crushing. And yeah, so, I mean, the good news is that they still got a lot of data from what the first eight legs were able to collect. 
and they have since developed what's called a shift platform, which has really cool like tiles of all different things, ways that people can get involved or take action to reduce plastic pollution in the ocean from all the different things we talked about, all the brainstorming we did. And they're still doing conferences. They still do shore, you know, shoreline cleanups, cleanups around rivers all over the world. They're still you know, workshops and I've done guest speaking and kind of brainstorming with, with other community leaders and stuff through this organization. But I just, from what I did get to experience, I'm really sad for those other women that didn't get to go because man, it was just incredible. And just, I made lifelong friends, you know, when I'm going to England for our honeymoon, hopefully COVID pending um, in July to see my best friend who lives there, but also to see a, a few of these women that I just became super close with when you're up at like four in the morning, sailing a boat just by like whatever stars you happen to be able to see in the super bright compass in your face. I mean, <laughs> you have four hours of just nonsense conversation. Like literally I was like, can you explain Brexit to me? <laughs> and she was like, Oh, well, and I'm like, Hill, we have four hours, dude. Like, <laughs> I got all the time. (laughs) Break it down, baby. And we literally were sitting there. We didn't know. We didn't know COVID anything. Mm. I mean, because it was just starting to kind of trickle in. When we got to the Galapagos, we would go island to island and they started checking our temperature and we're like, huh. And they're like, yeah, this is virus, whatever. Very, very new. But it was funny. Not really funny, but uh, ironic. Hillary and I, she's the one I became closest with. She's a doctor from the UK. We were filming each other, having a conversation. Like I had my phone facing me or her and opposite while we were sitting on deck and our teammate Stephanie was sailing and we had a team of three and we would always be up together doing all the things. And I was like, man, you know, it's wild. Like who, who knows what's going on on shore in the real world right now? We don't know. We have no, I mean, we have communication if we need it and we're sending some photos and cover stories back to headquarters so they can post it, but we're not getting news here. We're not like, we don't know. And Hill's like, man, a zombie apocalypse could be happening. We wouldn't even know. And we're just in the middle of the ocean, like four days away from anything. And and we were like, whoa, huh? Little did we know. Like, Little legit, did we know. Legit, an apocalypse, a pandemic was unfolding while we were on this boat. And we were just like, what? <laughs> Man, but it's wild. It's really wild. But what a, what a lifetime. And I had so many, like, I did go and present at Moody Gardens beforehand at the Plastics Pollution Symposium, a Texas organized event. And that was really cool. And then I presented at local breweries, bureau gardens, you know, my organization and things like that about what we were doing and what we did after the fact. And it was just really cool, like cool community support. And it really kind of got people interested in local microplastics issues because a lot of people have like just this intrinsic appreciation for the ocean. They just, they just care about it, you know? And it's like, well, what about your own backyard? What about that river behind your house? Or like, what about that little park? It's like, no, I want to go see the ocean. I want to go see whales and I want to go see that and this. And so there's sometimes you, you, you can't really connect people with the local environment, which is, I think a lot of times why some people might not care too much or might be unaware of what's happening. But when they hear me talk about like this really cool experience and being on the sailboat four days away from every, any land or other people. And like, I saw these dolphins and I saw blue footed boobies and I landed and saw all these sea lions and man, it was so cool. And I got to sail in the middle of the night by the North star and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, wow. You know? And then I'm like, but you know what? 
everything out there relies on everything right here. And, you know, kind of working backwards as like a new approach to get people to kind of take ownership and have a sense of place of their like local environment, which to be fair, I worked with beluga whales and penguins and sea lions and seals. Animals are not found here. And so until I started working on my job I have now, I didn't really have the appreciation that it deserves of the local ecosystem. And I, I was one of those people that was like, but I just love the open ocean and, and blue the whales. And I want to go to Antarctica and I want to go to Africa and blah, blah, blah. And I think the pandemic too, really, it, it forced people to appreciate what is literally in their backyard. You can't go anywhere. You can't get on a plane. You can't go to Africa. You have to stay here and literally sit in your yard. And look at tiny flowers you didn't notice were blooming until like you literally couldn't go anywhere else. <laughs> like literally I sat there and I was like, oh my God, I didn't even notice this was here. And it was like a really good moment and opportunity, I think, to stop and even like reflect on myself. Like how else can I get people to appreciate it if like there's things I'm even missing, you know? And you kind of using that angle to be like, hey, like, let's talk about your backyard. Let's talk about what's right here. Let's talk about how you can protect a blue whale you've never seen. Because guess what? If there's a bunch of plastics and all this business floating down the river, Buffalo Bayou in the middle of the city, and it gets all, it's going to come all the way out there. There's nothing stopping it. It's going to keep going all the way out to the ocean. Like, do you want that blue whale to find your plastic bottle? Probably not. So it was a really cool opportunity to really just bring it all home in a way that like I didn't expect. I mean, I expected to be able to come home with information to, you know, have more statistics or have, you know, new insight from people from other countries of like how they're more sustainable and like a million steps ahead of the U.S. Um, <laughs> Australia, for example. They've been using reusable bags since I, pff, I don't even know. I went to college uh, first semester there in 2006 and literally all the clothing stores like did not use plastic. They had tote bags you could buy the grocery store. Like, and that was 2006. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I came back and I was like, man, ooh, I have so much. And then pandemic happened. And like, I had to kind of just find a whole new way to educate people, find a whole new way to like get information out and like, I was all like riled up and excited about this experience. And then it was like, you can't go anywhere. And I was like, oh, well, I'm glad I got my travel in at least because it's, you know, a couple of years later, not happening. <laughs> Still. Yeah. But it was wild and cool and just magical. Mm. And yeah, I just. It sounds like, it. oh my God, please. It sounds yeah. like an absolute dream come true. I mean, and just you, you talking visit. about it, I want to go. <laughs> yeah, and you can visit the website. It's X, it's X Expedition. So it's E-X-X-P Expedition because it's two X's because X chromosomes. <laughs> <laughs> so two X chromosomes um, in the name. And you can visit it. You can see, like, if you go to leg six, which is what I was on, you can see the, the blogs I wrote while I was on board. You can see, like, all of the bios of the crew I was with. And you can see the science behind it and everything. It's really cool. And something that has been impactful since then is that we were literally four days away from people, land, any other boat. We hadn't seen anyone for four days 
we saw a full size 55 gallon plastic drum flow by and a crock shoe and like bleach bottles. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I haven't even seen a dolphin yet. Are you joking? I want to see a whale, not a crock shoe. Oh my God. And I'm like, man, it just, it's, it's perpetual. It just goes on. And actually funny, lighthearted moment. I told my friend who works with reptiles at the Dallas zoo. She's a, a, a assistant curator up there. And I was like, Laura, I saw this croc while we were going in the middle of nowhere. I saw this croc, blah, blah, blah. Weeks go by. And she's like, hey, can you send me a photo of that saltwater croc you saw? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? She's like, well, I was talking to my coworker and he's like never seen a saltwater crocodile. And like, can you send me a photo? And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? I didn't see a saltwater. (laughs) And so I'm talking to the guy in the Galapagos and he's like, no, like you wouldn't have seen that. Like, no. And I was like, huh? And then I was like, oh my God, the shoe. <laughs> the saltwater croc was in the shoe. <laughs> and I sent her the photo of the shoe floating by. And I was like, so, so sorry to get your hopes up. But this, I was talking about the shoe. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, I can't wait to send this to him. He's going to be like, oh, come on. Ultimate letdown ultimate letdown but that's just i mean a perfect metaphor like i was looking for wildlife and i saw this freaking plastic shoe also just hey psa don't wear crocs i hate crocs i was gonna say no Ugh. offense if you're one of those people but like don't be that guy yeah i mean same yeah it's just awful. i hate them and, <laughs> i mean i wear like i like to wear like slippers around the house have i gone to city hall with them picking up something absolutely do i care no it's a pandemic but i I would rather you wear slippers than Crocs. Just, just gonna put just gonna drop that in the head right there. Just, just gonna. Also, it's just like a needless, like the little plastic thingies that go in it. Oh just, my god, the the decor. Just, it's like that movie Waiting, where it's like the what do they call it? <laughs> like jazz pizzazz, the whatever, yeah. all the little buttons and stuff. I worked at Chili's for six years of my life. I'll never get back. And we didn't do that, thank God. <laughs> Suspenders with all the buttons and no thanks. Anyway. Uh, so is that so, how Sustainable Sasha came to be? Yes, that's how Sustainable Sasha was born. I needed a catchy name for my website to raise money on and to like talk about my project, about X Expedition, about like I wanted to share like my little sustainable journey and the things that I do to try to improve my sustainability and, and reduce my use of single use plastics. And so I think I, I honestly feel really terrible because I don't know who to credit it to. I don't know if I thought of it. I don't know if my friend, Laura, saltwater crock, Laura thought of it <laughs> or my friend, Daniel, who runs a local brewery that was super supportive during it. I feel like it was one of the three of us. I could be hundred percent incorrect, but anyway, that was born and that was nice and catchy. And so that I made a website to share my like GoFundMe kind of deal and, and to talk about the, the project and to talk about sustainability. And then that worked for, for raising money and for sharing my, my thoughts and my sustainable tips. And then when I came back and started working this job and COVID hit, we were like, what are we going to do? I can't go out and do presentations in the community anymore. Like I can't go talk to people. I can't do these booth thing events at conferences like I can't go do trash cleanups with people what am I going to do and we I think it was 
yeah, that after March COVID, when COVID really started, uh, Earth Day came around the bend in April. And we always do like a big Earth Day event in Houston at this big park, or we do, you know, all these different trash cleanups and stuff like that. We're like, man, we can't do any of this. What are we going to do? So we decided to do like, like basically like a video marathon on our Facebook page for our organization and post some videos like timed. And it would be like, kind of like a video presentation. And uh, I was like, okay, sure. And so I don't know. I think one of my coworkers where I mentioned like sustainable Sasha, like is catchy. And like, I could like be a character that talks about sustainability. And they're like, we love that. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's do a sustainable Sasha presents sustainability and recycling, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cool. And then my coworker, Nick at the time, he loved talking about nurdles, which is the raw form of plastic before it's injected into a mold and made into anything plastic. And I have those here, actually, if you can see them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these are all little raw plastic pellets, and they're all over the shorelines all over the world. We have a huge concentration here in Galveston Bay. Um, but he, we decided he would be Nurdle Nick. <laughs> oh. So we had Nurdle Nick, and then we had Bay Bob, who's our president, Bob. And because we talked about Galveston Bay. And then we had Science Cindy, our education lead. I feel like there was another one too. I can't remember. But we had another, you know, we had all these different little things, these little like kitschy names, you know? And so we did that. We each made a little video and we we presented them throughout the day and they were a hit. Man, Nurdle Nick was like watched in Canada. <laughs> like it was really cool. So I really missed being in, in with real people because obviously I like to talk. And so I was like really sad, but then I was like, you know what? More people can see this than I could get to, you know, in otherwise, a, in otherwise right? So Sustainable Sasha made a video and at my dining room table, I had so much I wanted to share, you know, all my little sustainable things, which I have here at my desk right now. I wanted to go over like, okay, if you have, I laid out all these plastic options that most people have in their household, like a spray bottle laundry detergent, plastic bags, plastic wrap, plastic cutlery, whatever, um, lotion bottles, shampoo bottles, all these things. I laid them all out. And then I went through and was like, how about this? How about that? You know, and giving real life alternatives. And then I also had some items to recycle or throw away. And so I went through and I was like, okay, you know, a lot of people don't understand what to do with this item, like an envelope. I was that person that was ripping out the windows and recycling the paper. But envelopes mostly are, almost all of them have cellulose as the window, which is wood. You can just recycle it as is. I didn't know that. (laughs) Here I am a professional. I did not know that. So I was like, hey, fun fact. You know, magazines used to not be recyclable. They are now. You can recycle them. Like all this stuff that like a lot of people are like, I don't know what to do with this. And so educating people on those commonly misunderstood recycling things. And then I wrote a blog post to go with it that had links to like a lot of online shops or like suggestions for DIY options to replace and things like that. And then also links to all the local recycling centers and you know what they do and do not accept. So I wrote that whole blog to go with it. I filmed a 15 minute YouTube video and I did not know anything about video editing. It was kind of supposed to appear live. So I had to literally, I ended up writing a PowerPoint of all the things I wanted to make sure to get in there. And then I practiced it with the time slides and propped up my laptop on top of like this thing on a 
dining room chair because I was at my table and then I had like this like I don't know what I would have done without this during COVID. I had my phone on this tripod on a chair and filming me at my table like trying to not look like I was reading going through all these things and making sure I didn't forget like this is the rule here man I killed it I'm not gonna lie I did a really good job yeah and sustainable sustainable Sasha was then famous and then I started following up with different sustainable Sasha video content blog posts presentations I did one for kids uh that following May like for Bay Day we had a little event like that and it was a, a shorter, like couple minutes, five maybe, minute of a kid's game where I would hold up an item and I would have three bins. And I'm like, is it trash? Compost? Recycling. Give them a second to scream at the computer. Yeah. <laughs> and then I throw it in. And our wonderful um, communications person who has now moved on to Nature Conservancy, she put these cute little icons and like, ding, you know, like little things on top of it. I did a lot, ended up doing a lot of video editing myself because like this, she was, I'm sure, overwhelmed by all the video content we had to create. Our education team was making videos too that we were contributing to. It was, it was a whole like all hands on deck, really just trying to get this information out there and, and provide new content for people to learn while we couldn't be out there. So, you know, and then from that, I still now, even when I go out and do like booths or presentations, it's like, man, I have all this cool, sustainable Sasha content. And, and like, so I go and I, I have a booth. I went to a sustainability film festival at U- university of Houston and I brought the nurdles and I like sprinkled them on this little fake shoreline of sand with like little twigs. And I was like, so when you go to the beach and you see the, the tide line, it's supposed to be like little sands and seeds and shells. If you look really closely, unfortunately, it's also a bunch of nurdles. <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. You're going to not unsee that now. But <laughs> it was really neat to see people's reaction when they'd come up and they'd be like, wait, what is, what is that? And I'd be like, and also look at how hard it is to remove these things. And the reason there's so many nurdles is because we use so much plastic. If we use less plastic, we use less nurdles. And also they're so small that they spill out of rail cars and shipping containers super easily. And there's no regulations for fining with the amount that that's spilled, it's just like a fraction of what a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what these places produce. So we work with Nurdle Patrol, which is a, a citizen science program started by this awesome guy named um, Jace Tunnel. And it's a citizen science 10 minute thing. Anywhere you go on any shoreline, you just look for a nurdle, you find a nurdle, you set a timer for 10 minutes on your phone, count how many you find. And then you take the latitude and longitude of where you're at. If you want to take pictures, you can, there's an app for it, or you just go on the website put in the number you found, where you were, and and that's it. It's really cool. But on on average, where I'm at in Galveston Bay, there's a lot of, you know, plastics companies and, and petroleum and things like that. And there's, we have a really high concentration around here. So it is not uncommon for me to find over 210 minutes without moving my feet. Literally, like, Whoa. I don't even have to spin around. Like, I sit, I stand in one spot, and I'm just like, that's it's nuts. nuts. It's really nuts and really sad. <laughs> so that's just another, we do like a few different citizen science projects. That's one of them that really speaks to people, including people in the plastics industry. We work with a lot of local plastics companies and they come out and they do these cleanups with those. And we do a neural patrol and they're like, oh, first they're like, ah, we're not going to find that much. Like we don't spill anything, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, oh my God. 
oh my God, I'm so sorry. And they just spend the rest of the day apologizing to us. And I'm like, you know what? I'd rather you be here than not. You know, a lot of people are like, yeah, a lot of people are like, don't talk to the enemy. But it's like, what are you going to do? Isolate yourselves and then they never get to know you and you never get to know them and you don't find solutions together. If they're unaware that these things are happening, that all this plastic's being found, all this trash is being found, then what's, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people that do work in the industry that do inherently want to make the world a better place and a cleaner place. But like a lot of times without evidence, their bosses aren't going to listen. <laughs> That's really any job. Um, yeah. But yeah. for them to come out with us and like see, you know, see that kind of light bulb, like, whoa. And then they want to learn more and they want to do more and they want to come out and train their employees. Like, hey guys, don't spill this because it's a problem. Some follow the rules. You know, we have companies that do that now and, you know, that want to come out and want to learn more and want to hear more. And like, I had a plastics company ask me to do a sustainability presentation. And I was like, you do know I'm going to talk about plastics, right? <laughs> right. Like the very and, you know, thing your trying, business around. I was trying to be sensitive and be like, you're not, I don't want to be that person like a blackfish person watching blackfish and coming like, you're evil and you're a monster for what you do. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I don't want to come in and be like, you know, what you're doing to feed your family is terrible. You know, like, no, plastics is incredibly important. The, the medical industry, especially during COVID, would not function, be safe, be, you know, sanitary without plastics. The automobile industry, we worked with a bunch of awesome people from Volkswagen. Like, that would not be safe. It would not have the progress it has made at this point um, to be so safe without plastics. It's incredibly important material. But no, you don't need a plastic water bottle unless you're in a situation. God forbid things that are still going on in this country um, where you don't have safe drinking water, then yeah, by all means use plastic bottles. But if you're just lazy or not thinking ahead or not changing your habits and relying on this convenience purely for convenience sake, you really need to start trying to make an effort because you, we need to have plastics for the medical industry, for the automobile industry, for science technology, for students to learn, for safety, for all these other reasons that don't include you desperately needing whatever Gatorade. <laughs> like, hi, these exist. You can put stickers on them. They're infinitely cooler than a plastic bottle. <laughs> like, it's, I literally do not leave home without this when I do I feel disconnected just and if I do which has happened I could count on one hand probably the times I've left my my house without this thing what I will do is if I really need I'll try to find some place with a water fountain I would rather go somewhere and buy either something that comes in a glass bottle for example something like that you know I'll buy like a tea like an iced tea or something that comes in glass at a, at a convenience store. It's something like, you know what I mean? Juice or something. Um, and then refill that with water later at the office, for example. But there's just a lot of things that it just requires a lifestyle change and it requires habit forming. And, you know, the next question I always get is like, well, it's not all our fault. Like, why are we doing this when like Coca-Cola is making 8,000? That's a huge underestimation. Um, when they're making a ton of plastic every single day. And I get that. And I get that it's frustrating and I get that you, you know, you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle, but at the same time, would you rather be doing nothing and contributing to the problem or 
reducing your own single-use waste, which then reduces pressure on recycling, but also reduces litter, trash, etc. And most importantly in this equation, reduces how much you are giving to the plastics industry. Because, um, yes, it does take an industry component. It does take political components. It does take legislation. But those things aren't going to happen if we continue to utilize a product. So you need to speak with your money also, because at the end of the day, unfortunately, that's what rules the world. And progress won't be made unless we continue to make better choices and, you know, shop from places that care, reuse things we already have, think about things a little harder before we buy them and just really reframe what we're doing. And yes, I work with Coca-Cola. They recycle some of their syrup barrels to us every single month to repurpose into rain barrels for the community. They give them to us for free and we get to charge only 35 bucks for people to collect their own rainwater, which during the freeze here, a lot of people were able to flush their toilets because they had a rain barrel water, you know, in a, in a, in a um, crucial situation, they could boil it and drink it, you know? So these companies aren't doing all that, but yeah, they need to hear from people that are saying, we don't want to do this anymore. We want an alternative. We need progress. We need things to change. And you can see that it's happening. Dove deodorant now has a fully reusable, refillable metal, aluminum deodorant container. Target, if you go to Target, you look across the shelves on Target, you'll see so many more reusable products, refillable products in a chain store. Like it's happening. And, you know, unfortunately in Texas, they love to ban bands. It's their favorite. It's their favorite. But they like, it felt like secretly at night, banned plastic bag bands. So, you cannot be at no city can decide for themselves. So previously, Austin, Brownsville, a couple other Texas cities had created a plastic bag ban. And Texas was like, nope, cities can't decide. We're all about independence here, but cities can't decide <laughs> what they want to do. The you can't ban plastic bags. <laughs> I know it's wild. The state is super weird. I'm not from here. <laughs> Disclaimer. But so now you, yeah, businesses can decide for themselves, but then it puts businesses in a position to look like the bad guy mm -hmm. and not provide for their customers. You know, if a business chooses to, to only provide straws and plastic cutlery by request, they're going to get those people that get their food and go home, didn't ask for cutlery, and they're like, I didn't get my cutlery. How dare they? And then they look like a bad business that doesn't care about customer service. And that's a lot of what we hear from small businesses. Well, guess what? You should have asked. You should have to ask. That should be the standard. Also, oftentimes you're going home. Don't be lazy. Wash a fork. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's all about changing the the standard. You know, changing what we what we are doing in our everyday lives. Changing the habits. Changing you know the kind of homeostasis is a science word. There's another word I'm looking for. Yeah, just so like our natural just rhythms, together. like what we yeah yeah what yeah we just do. Yeah, changing the standard. You know, it should be common practice to when you order takeout, have to ask for plasticware. You shouldn't, you shouldn't automatically get it because A, for a small business that's wasteful money-wise, mm -hmm. they're, they're spending money they don't need to be spending. They could be putting into other things. And right. it's wasteful from a, from a plastics perspective. It, it's just, it's nobody wins there except for you who didn't want to wash a fork. Yeah, <laughs> it's very few. <laughs> 
But oftentimes it's, you know, it's not because that person really desperately wanted to and felt entitled to a plastic fork. They just forgot to ask to not have color in there and they feel bad about it. And then they end up with a drawer full of plastic color. It's happened to me. Me too. You know, I just, it's just, yes, it's, it's devastating sometimes, but it takes more people making the right decisions and, and getting that to be commonplace. Same thing. I always think about seatbelt laws. Seatbelts used to not be a law, but then guess what? People couldn't do the right thing on their own. So it had to become a law to save lives. (laughs) And I feel like a lot of times that's what we need to be doing with plastic bags and things like that, for example. You know, like there is a time and a place for plastics. And I think there really should just be some limitations or, or extra cost if you want to be doing that. You know, yeah, the five, 10 cent, whatever surcharge, what have you. It's not hard, but sometimes people really need to be pushed to do the right thing or to change their habits, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, because it's it's like, what path can I take that has the least resistance? And right right now, the way it's set up, the least resistance is to go into Target, buy your stuff, and then put it in a plastic bag and leave. That is mm-hmm. the least resistance because we don't have to pay for that plastic bag because oh. there is no reason to remember to put my reusable bag in my car for this one time that I needed to go do this thing or mm-hmm. or even like getting takeout. Like I really want to support a local business, but then my takeout came in styrofoam and you're like, right. shit, I didn't know that you used styrofoam, but now mm-hmm. I got to eat my food. But now am I going to go back to you? Like... Because then, like, yes. my guilt is too high, but then at the same time, but I, I'm just around chain food. I mean, like, there's, like, so many internal battles Battle. that we have yeah. with ourselves. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't and want I've, to support this chain, but I want to support you. That's the local business. But you give me styrofoam, and, like, I don't know what to do, you know? Yeah. And honestly, like, I've had those hard conversations with businesses I adore. And it has oftentimes gotten me results. You know, there is this farmer's market that happens every weekend here. And there is a vendor there that I love. Like They make all like really cool, like gluten, vegan, dairy free, whatever. And I'm not strictly any of those things. But, you know, sometimes I feel better if I don't eat a bunch of white flour. Right. <laughs> um, and she just makes delicious stuff. Like it's delicious. It's so worth the price. But everything came in plastic. Clamshell was plastic clamshell. Mm. And, you know... I would go to the market and I stopped wanting to buy from her because I just, it hurt me. Cause otherwise the only thing I get my, I get in plastic at the grocery store is pretty much uh, berries. But other than that, like occasionally like spinach, if I don't buy like the loose spinach, Mm -hmm. but other than that, like we pretty much eliminate plastic containers. We buy like all loose produce and our reusable produce bags and whatnot. So it hurt me to be like, every Sunday, I really want this treat, but then it gives me these one or two clamshells of plastic. So, you know, one day after I had, you know, kind of been frequenting her here and there, and I said, you know, like, I really love your stuff, but like, have you ever considered a more sustainable packaging? And she was like, you know, I I tried some out. They really didn't hold up. I really wanted people to be able to see the food item and it not just be hidden by cardboard and it can be more expensive. And I'm, you know, I've thought about it and I'm trying, but like, if you have any suggestions, like, let me know, you know? And so it was really lovely to hear that she had given it some thought. And, you know, maybe about a year, a year or two later, I saw her post on her Instagram and she said, 
hey, I'm thinking of trying these new, more sustainable packages. And it's cardboard with a cellulose window. And she said, you know, I have a lot of customers and I really don't want to let you guys down. But if I get these, I'm going to have to raise my prices by was 25 cents or 50 cents or something. Would you be willing to pay that if I changed packaging? And I, of course, was like first person to, <laughs> to comment and be like, absolutely. Hands yes, yes, down. Yes. <laughs> I miss you. And, and she did it. And she did it. That's and now amazing. everything is in these beautiful little like craft paper cardboard things and I buy something from her every time I see her now because I you know I spoke up and she heard this concern from as it went on more and more people and she decided it was worth investing in it was worth trusting her customers and listening to her customers and yeah she had to raise her prices but like we supported her and she's doing great and you know so it takes having those difficult conversations, supporting people who are trying to do the right thing and make a difference and showing up and spreading the word and being supportive of these small businesses that a lot of times it is small businesses that are making these better decisions, mm -hmm. which is wild because like corporations have the ability and flexibility to take these losses. And what we're seeing is I can speak from my little island here alone. It's the small businesses that are using the, you know, recycled cardboard takeout containers, listening to me when I literally showed up last night and was like, hi, I have a takeout order. If there's cutlery in there, can you just keep it, please? Because once I leave with it, I understand they can't take it back. So usually I say it on the phone. And then when I go there, I just ask them to double check and they're super sweet about it and they take it out, you know, and they're like, okay, no worries. It's those people that are putting in the effort and I keep going back to them and I thank them for their efforts. And I, pay them my money. And I, I, shop, <laughs> I shop there. I revisit there. I thank them for putting in the effort. And it, yeah, there are some difficult conversations. There are me calling back and saying, you know, I asked for no cutlery and the last couple of times I've ordered, like it's still in there. Like you think you guys can make an effort to, to, to accept my request. And they're like, you know, we just have people complain when they don't get it. And I'm like, I understand, you know, hopefully over time that this won't be the norm, but like, and it, it you know, there are those, those awkward conversations, but I'll take, I'll take a bullet. You know what I mean? I'll, yeah. be that guy. <laughs> I'll be that annoying person because especially when you're a regular, you know, mm. when you do mm -hmm. shop at small businesses and restaurants, it's like, man, I love you guys, but I wish blank. And you know, they might take it to heart a little bit more than some random that shows up and is like, well, I hate you because you use plastic. Bye. Okay. Well, never going to see you again, but <laughs> yeah, they're like, thank you, asshole. Get out my door. Yeah, but <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, for small businesses, I feel for them. But at the same time, like we talked about, they're losing money by literally just giving the stuff out for free. They they don't need to be giving you a plastic bag. They don't need to be giving you plastic cutlery. They don't need to be wasting a straw on you if you're not going to use it, if you don't need it, if you thought ahead and brought your own. <laughs> that that helps them out 100%. So like twofold, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, literally talking about my props here. I Yes, I use a fanny pack. Don't judge me. This is my fanny pack. <laughs> this is my fanny pack. Uh, it, was, it, it was so good on the boat. And every everywhere I go in my fanny pack, I have. It's my little tote. Reused, reused, oh God, reused Ipsy bag, you know, Ipsy tote. I had to stop getting Ipsy because I was like, I don't need this plastic makeup. I don't even, you know, I have to stop that. I have this spork. Look at this bad boy. 
It's my favorite thing. It's from United by Blue, which is a really cool website. They have all of their environmental impacts uh, like listed and their progress listed. And they sponsored my trip by sending me like a really cool canvas pack, a reusable water bottle, a reusable cutlery set. Like they have really cool stuff and they have earth conscious textiles, clothing and stuff like that too. This is the best spork ever. I also got sporks and sold them for raising money for my trip. But in here I have my spork. I have, shout out to Altoids. With these little pens, this is where I keep my ibuprofen and vitamins. <laughs> you know, I got my stuff. I just tote this thing around. And I also have in here, what do I have in here? Oh, I have my little lip balm from an Etsy shop. I love Etsy. You don't know, if you think you can't find something sustainably packaged, go to Etsy. There is some chick using herbs from her backyard to make you bomb lip balm. This is delightful. <laughs> It's got real mint from this chick's backyard. And it was like a couple of dollars, you know, like literally this is just, and I have a reusable straw in here too. There you go. Well, whatever. It's this cool little collapsible one. That's my cocktail straw. (laughs) I don't lie. Um, But that's what I have in my bag every single day. I'm devastated when I go somewhere and I don't have my spork and I'm like, ah, my spork. No, but it's those kinds of changes, you know, pack your spork, pack your straw, you know, even, Where's, where's this guy? My reusable napkin. Oh, oh it's so cute. Oil. It's got an ostrich made of roses on it. Oh my gosh. And on the other side, there's mice. <laughs> I have a set of these from this little cute company called Violet Orange. And it's a Rhode Island based company. I saw them in a farmer's market when I was home visiting my mom. And I was like obsessed. My husband bought, I kid you not, like, at least 10 masks from this woman because these prints are so cute. And he's, he's on his second year of teaching with these masks and they're adorable and they're animals and science-based. And so the kids, you know, they probably don't care because they're high schoolers, but right. he, lo- he loves them. But like, this is just my like life story. I have my beeswax wrap. I've had this for at least five years and it's still like, boom, holds its shape. Doing his thing. Man, it, this stuff is resilient. I've also made these. I did a presentation once about the microplastics and the work that we do. And um, we made these wax wrap with um, some local Texas A&M students. It was really wow, fun. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. I got my little Ziploc, my little silicone Ziploc. I have these. Target sells these now. Silicone is made from sand. Did you know? People think it's plastic. It's not. Um, <laughs> I got my reusable. This is a zoo sandwich bag. Bowling for Rhinos is a a nationwide fundraiser for rhinos in Kenya. You're probably familiar. It's a little, and in it right now, I have from my wedding, my bamboo cutlery. (laughs) I had left over from our wedding because we had, we had a plastic free wedding. And so we had bamboo cutlery and mason jars. I sourced 110 secondhand mason jars. That is amazing. it was wild friends family yard sales you name it we figured it out and then this is my like i don't know if you can see this my Mm -hmm. little wedding my little wedding crown this is is actually morning glory vine from my yard oh that's so beautiful and just little dried baby's breath that's just i saw that and thought of that but anyway i mean there's literally just so many things you can do and some people are like well i don't want to buy all this reusable stuff. It's like, duh, don't buy it all right now. That's also wasteful. Use what you have so you can't use it anymore. 
recycle it. Like, yes, I still have plastic Tupperware because I'm not just going to throw it away or recycle mm-hmm. it if I'm still using it. That's silly. That's also wasteful. But as you replace it, I get glass now or I get tin now. If you microwave a lot of stuff, don't get tin. That's a bad idea. We don't need an explosion in your house. <laughs> no. I told it to my husband. I was like, let's get tin next time. He's like, I have to use the microwave at school. And I was like, Oh, right. Glass it is then. <laughs> um, but literally my favorite thing to tell people is get a pencil case. My friend Crystal made this one, but get a little pencil case, a cloth pencil case, and put in it your mismatched silverware from your drawer. I don't like this fork at home. It doesn't, it's not particularly like sturdy. It's kind of weird weight. I'm picky like that. But this is what I keep in my car is just my mismatched silverware, a straw, a cleaner, and another, this one has bears on it. And another oh napkin. So and that's just put it in your car, guys. Put it in your purse. Put it wherever. You don't need to buy fancy sporks. I, I love my spork and I highly endorse those sporks. But you don't have to do that, you know? And this mason jar we came back to. <laughs> mason jars are the best. They're infinitely usable. If you need to recycle them, or promise me you won't ever have to recycle them because somebody wants to buy them to put jam in. Yeah. I had 20 left over from my wedding that people didn't take home and they should have. They were supposed to take them home. And this woman came up. I was selling her a rainbow. She was like, what's up with those mason jars? And I was like, oh, they're left over from my wedding. She's like, oh, well, I, I need jam. Can I, can I have them? And I was like, please do. <laughs> take them. Bartering also needs to come back. <laughs> yes, there's Crown Royal in here. Um, but mason jars, man. If you don't like because it's cold, I put my iced coffee and just put a little koozie on it. And it fits. It fits. I mean, this one's quite stretched out now, but it's fine. It's holding my crown. But anyway, I mean, I have everything made in like tin, glass. I have a stainless steel razor. Over time, I've just started like replacing these things. And man, I just love it. It's just so much easier to travel with shampoo bars than like bottles of shampoo. And my hair, I'm, I am out of my shampoo bar. So I'm using what was left over from my wedding beach house that like friends brought bottled shampoo Honestly, my hair hates it. Mm. It's so flat <laughs> right now. It's like it needs its bars back. But I mean, yeah, so it's just all these little things. And it's on my my blog. I can send you that link. if you Yeah, want please, to share it please, please. But the Earth Day blog I did has links to some of my favorite shops. One of them is an old zookeeper too, a drop in mm. the ocean. Yeah, but yeah. And I just recently shared on the Galveston Bay Foundation's Facebook page our sustainable holiday guide. Oh, perfect. I wrote that last year. And it's not just like buy this instead of this. It's like, this is what you, these are the questions you should ask yourself before you buy a Christmas gift or a Hanukkah gift or a Kwanzaa, whatever. Um, Any holiday gift or a birthday gift or whatever. Here's some questions you should ask yourself. Do they really need this? Are they going to use it? Is it a child that's going to like play with it for two seconds and throw it out the window? Please don't do that. Um, (laughs) But maybe an experience. Maybe. I love giving experiences. Yes. Get him a zoo membership. Not to plug zoos again, but like, you know, get him a zoo membership. Get him a science museum membership. Get him like, get him like uh, something they can build. Build a treehouse to get, not treehouse, that's a lot. Um, I was thinking like a birdhouse, but said treehouse. <laughs> build a treehouse. Best parents ever. Super right. rad. Do that. But build a treehouse. Build a bat house. Mm. build one of those little squirrel tables that they can eat sunflower seeds on outside of your window you know do activities together get you know it's there's so many things out there that you can do that aren't things and then when you are going to buy a gift what's it packaged in is it wrapped in like a ton of plastic unnecessary packaging 
can you pick it up locally instead of buying it online? You know, what's the least amount of carbon footprint? Sometimes it is less carbon footprint to have it shipped to you um, than it is to drive, you know, an hour away to a specialty shop and get it. You know, it really, there's, there are companies that will offer you to offset their carbon footprint when you buy something, you know, you know, I believe does that. There are a lot of companies that do that. Um, so, you know, can you shop small so that it's less waste and perhaps they use more sustainable materials? And then it also has a list of some, some of those favorite things that I, that I like to, to gift. And then it has some DIY ideas as well. How to make reusable napkins really easily. Um, how to make, you know, what's it called? Caramelized pecans in a mason jar. Um, there's a link to the Sustainable Sasha blog, which is more of those DIY things. But yeah, just asking yourself those questions when you're gift giving. Here's like, how do you wrap your package? How do you wrap your gifts? Maybe wrapping it in like a scarf or something that's part of the gift. Using fragments of wrapping paper. My sister-in-law, one, one year, wrapped this present. She, it was a big present too. She took every scrap of like all this wrapping paper she had and she like made this like patchwork quilt wrapping paper. She's like, I could not give this to anyone but you without judging it. being acceptable, but only for like, you. This is so cool. I loved it. And then my mom used to wrap all our presents in the comic page from the Sunday paper. And it was the best. And like to this day, it like brings me warm feelings to be like, that's like my mom's wrapping paper of choice. <laughs> really, it was free. Um, because she would get it from my grandpa. But like, you know, it's it's the same thing. Going back to my childhood, like the free cheap things were the most sustainable vacations, were the most sustainable gifts, were, you know, what kept me connected and grounded, you know? So it's, and I think a lot of people are getting back to that slowly, or maybe as our generation is kind of taking the reins in a lot of places, you know, we are talking a little, we're back to bartering things, you know? Like my friend was like, hey, uh, can I borrow your tent? I'll bake you a dozen bagels. And I was like, you can take my house for a dozen bagels. <laughs> I love bagels and I'm in Texas and we don't have good bagels in Galveston. And she knows this because she's from Long Island. And yeah, I we lent her our tent so she didn't have to buy one to use once. And she gave us bagels. Best thing ever. Awesome. Love it. Go to your buy nothing group on Facebook. Best thing ever. And that's how I have passed on microwaves, pots and pans that I want. I, you know, we just got married. I didn't, we put like nothing on our registry except an air fryer, a pot and pan set. And like, I think a new comforter, everything else was like, please help us repair this hole in our wall. (laughs) Um, Literally I have to learn how to install drywall. It's fine. But the pots and pans, I heavily researched like this company and like their environmental impact and how long they would last. And if they're made with toxins or plastic or whatever, yes, not everybody has the luxury to do that, but my pans that I had, I didn't want to just throw them away. They were still functional, but like I was at the point in my life where it's like, man, I really want a nice set of pot and pans that's going to last and that I don't have to scream at because it's my eggs are sticking to it. And I eat a lot of eggs. And so I was able to gift all these pots and pans to this woman who was like so pumped to have them. Barter, give, gives. We need to make, make it normal to give secondhand gifts. Like it's a thing. We can do it. It's fine. Tell people it's for the environment if they think you're being cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And, and I love to give consumables as well. Yes. So this Who's is coming kidding? out. Yeah, exactly. This is coming out before Christmas, or I would say exactly what all of my family is getting. In case mm-hmm. anyone listened to it, I don't want to completely bust it. But they're getting some epic consumable things from my yeah. travels. And also, too, since I live in Colorado and my family is not none of my family does like none of my family lives here. So and we all 
we all love to drink a lot. Mm-hmm. And so giving a local brewery, like the, some of our favorite beer, or we all were really into whiskey. I'm from like the land of whiskey. Nice. And so giving a really nice bottle of whiskey and like that is something to consume that's a whole experience and it's yeah. not just a thing that's just going to sit on their shelf well Love the whiskey it. might sit on the shelf for a while but like it's, it's going to eventually be it comes in glass bottle exactly Woo, and well I, I only purchased the glass bottle so it's yeah like, or of course beers and you know the aluminum cans so yeah yeah, and also too, I've come to find that a lot of people love those gifts more, especially yeah. the experiences. You know, we're all so yes. busy. I love that you brought that up. We're all so busy. I'm like, I bought you these concert tickets. Yes, you're freaking Absolutely. going. Like, yeah. you don't have a choice. These are not refundable. <laughs> you're going. You're we gonna, bought you're you this have a good experience. Time. Exactly. You are taking <sighs> the night off, and you're going to go have this experience. Yes. And. I don't know. I've come to find that those are some of the most enjoyable things. And like, yeah. I'm also trying to get that in my family too, because sometimes it's hard for us to justify to go purchase an Airbnb and go stay somewhere yeah. beautiful or, or go do that concert or go to that game or something. Yeah. But if someone buys it for you, no, it's, like, <laughs> it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Like it's, it's, it's a mm-hmm. whole night of yeah. fun that you have. Um, yeah, and so I I really I hope that that, that. movement continue that movement continues of just like yeah. giving experiences, giving consumables, giving these other things that might be a little bit outside of the box than just. I love that. And another thing too, like we just got married, right? And so we had a friend. She's like, oh man, I really don't have like money to like buy you this gift, whatever. She's like, how about I do a project for you? And let me tell you about my love language because it is acts of service. You know, we're all so busy. There is nothing better that my husband or friend can say to me than let me do this for you so you don't have to. Sweet music (laughs) to my ears. Please take it something off my to-do list because you know I have a long one. And she's like, you know, like your walls are literally drywall. They didn't even bother to prime them. I kid you not. All flippers everywhere. Please don't do that. But she painted our living room. And it was in desperate need of not being drywall white that is easily stained. Luckily, not kids, but like, man, now it's this beautiful, calming blue, and it's nothing I ever would have had the time or patience to do myself. And what a magical gift. And that's the one you're talking to me about right now. Right. And my sister in law last Christmas, she made us a perfect tiny replica. It's right there, but I'm not going to get up and get it. But it's a perfect (laughs) tiny replica of the front of our house. Oh my God. Made of wood. And I was like, ma'am, how do you make this? She made it in a week. She like hand caught, like hand cut these wood pieces, put our little dogs in the window and paper like cut out. Uh, what? And we <laughs> opened it. We were just like, oh my God, you made this? You put the time and energy into this gift. Like, I know some people don't appreciate that kind of stuff, but like, again, habits like making the norm to be like I put time and effort into this and I made this for you out of love and like man that's cool I'm happy for anybody to just bake me cookies or like take me <laughs> out to dinner a hundred percent man food yes please Paint and a spending wall? time Absolutely. with me yeah let's go with it my mother-in-law's getting us a toilet like thanks <laughs> like that's really what I need is a new toilet <laughs> like 
let's talk about needs and like good things that are useful or, you know, things you can enjoy instead of just being like random things, you know? Absolutely. Anyway, that's one of the best ways to stop having trash on our shorelines <laughs> is things we need, using things we need, you know, love it. And we do a lot of cool, a lot, a lot of cool, cool work with the community and in citizen science and just, you know, getting, getting this kind of data that allows me to sit here and say like, yeah, man, like 70% of the trash we find on shorelines is plastic. It's just cold, hard facts from the data we collect every single month around the Bay as we go out and we, we survey the same hundred meters of shoreline on all these different locations. And we literally pick apart every piece of trash and we mark down exactly what it is. And then we run the analysis on it. 70% of it is some sort of plastic. Mm. And, you know, people are like, well, what's the difference? It's like, well, I mean, yeah, me finding a full spatula out there isn't helpful either, which has happened. But the plastics just only continue to, to break down with UV light and release toxins into the environment. And they literally never go away. Whereas a piece of wood or cardboard or glass will eventually break down and go back into the environment. But, and metal, if recycled, is pretty infinitely recyclable. We have enough aluminum on the planet that if we all recycled it, we wouldn't need to mine for new aluminum for like 100 years. But when it comes to plastic, it's like that stuff only can only be recycled so many times before it breaks down. And then just breaks down into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller particles. So that's why, you know, yes, it's best to just try to avoid single use period and try to focus more on reusable and like not being wasteful with what you have and then repurposing and things like that and refusing when you can. But when you do have to get something new or you do have to use something that you only use once, think about the material and, and focus on, on those, those more um, naturally produced packaging, you know? But yeah, it's, it's pretty wild what we see when we go out and we do these marine debris surveys is like, Man, it's a lot of fishing line, obviously, but mm. a lot of plastic cutlery, a lot of plastic bottles, plastic bottle caps, you know, fragments, just fragments upon fragments of plastic film and hard plastics. And yeah, we find construction materials a lot too. Really? Um, again, yeah. Again, eventually that wood will break down. You know, sometimes we can't even tell it apart from driftwood. So mm. I see a nail and I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> But, you know, eventually that will break back down into the earth. And yeah, if it's, you know, if it's pressure treated wood, like, there's some chemicals involved there and whatnot, but it's still not as infinitely like just present in the environment as a, as a plastic will be. And that's some of the things that we talk about. And yeah, we work with plastic companies to do this work. Literally, we're funded by some oil and gas to do this marine debris work and to get this information out in the community. But those companies that are supportive in these things, they're also listening to us a lot of the time and working with us. You know, we work with Dow and they, man, they're super passionate about this project we're working on and they come out and they see it and they help and they want to be part of like the school curriculum we're putting together to like teach kids about it. And they want to hear feedback. They want to know what, what they can do better and they want to see what's going on. And, you know, so I have to say, you know, it's, they're not all bad. Yeah. I still want to make sure that they can feed their kids and, you know, have a, have a life and, you know, be able to have a job, but there's progress to be made too. And I think the beauty is when you can work with, with these companies and, and have a symbiotic relationship and say like, Hey, like, 
let's help each other out see to kind of see what we can do and see how we can we can make make the world a better place and make change you know absolutely well i mean they have the most to lose in this don't they at the end of the day and they also have the most power Mm -hmm. honestly um you know that big structural change when it comes to industry and legislation is that's going to take the longest but it's going to be the most impactful and that's what i think is frustrating for a lot of people is they're like well why am i going to make a change now wouldn't it just be easier and a bigger effect if so-and-so stopped making single-use plastic bottles? Well, yeah, but that's not going to happen overnight. I tell you that right now because people are still buying it. They're going to still buy it. And why would they change? It's just the same thing for any behavior, human, mm-hmm. animal, otherwise. Why are they going to do something differently if what they're doing keeps working and they keep making money off of it? Mm-hmm. Why do you think scammers exist? <laughs> <laughs> Because they, they keep doing it. They keep making money off of it. We keep buying it. Why would they stop? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there's positives. There's, there, you know, there's definitely silver linings when it comes to some of these companies that we work with that do help and that do want to hear what we have to say. And like, it's really, it's really nice, you know, to work with them and to hear them get excited about it and to meet a lot of their staff that's like, loves the environment and like wants to do better and like cares about the planet, cares to learn and cares to grow and change. And it might not be people in positions of power now, but those people could be. Easily. I've seen that happen in the zoo world. You know, you see, you know, you didn't have a great manager at the last place, but you go to the next place and that person who used to be a keeper is now a manager and is doing right. And is taking the time to, to care about their staff and to, positively reinforce people and not just animal um and you know be that better person in that role same thing no matter what job you're in no matter what industry you're in no matter what role you're in the more you connect with people the more that next level is going to be better you know so it's wild (laughs) (laughs) it's wild so i have to ask you what advice would you like to share with anyone listening, if you have one message you want to get out, what would that be? Nothing is ever permanent except plastic. (laughs) You can change your job. You can change your career. You can change your passion. You can change your goals in life and what matters to you. So really just don't forget that. Don't be, you know, hard on yourself with what you thought was what you wanted to do with your life doesn't pan out or a couple of years down the line, you're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. That's okay. You can always change your mind. You know, I have friends struggling with that right now. You can always change your mind. You can always move. You can always leave. You can always go do something different. So don't be hard on yourself. If you change your mind um, and stop using so much plastic. <laughs> But yeah, really just go easy on yourself. That being said too, like don't change everything at once, but like, it's okay if, if you want to make a change and yeah. Mm. yeah. That was so great. Look out and for you and the planet <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> that was perfect. Like the perfect wrap up to everything. <laughs> and Sasha, you are phenomenal. Thank you oh, thanks. so much for coming on. I feel like you're making an amazing impact and will continue to do so. I hope. I hope so. like to share it. Yes. And just, man, you know, now that we're kind of in a position to be able to talk to people again and like meet people, 
man, have a conversation with somebody you don't know. Mm. Like we just did. Um, but like people are fascinating. You know, I could not agree more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wild. Awesome. Anyhow. All right. Well, well thank you, darling. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>